Proverbs 30, 32 is not where we'll be this morning, but I want to start there and reread a passage that we've already read today before we get into the Word. Um, if you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. This is not Simon Says, by the way. And I want to reread Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Strong, pointed, important words as we begin this morning. What we're going to look at today is the beginning of one of the most controversial passages of Scripture in the Bible. And again, I said earlier about voting, it's a hard election cycle to participate in. And it would be very easy to just pass up Romans 9, 10, and 11. Just say, you know what? Eh, we don't need it. But that's not the way that we operate here. Praise God. We preach what's next. And what's next after Romans 8 is Romans 9. So <clears throat> this would be my request. And, and, and I sent out a request over Facebook for those of you all that seen it. I would ask you to take what we're going to look at probably over the next, golly, I don't know, a couple, three months probably at least, um, in the context of the book of Romans. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are not a standalone set. They cannot exist outside of Romans 1 through 8 and Romans 12 through 16. I asked you, if you could, to at least read Romans 9, 10, and 11, but even more desirable, if you could, to read the whole book of Romans sometime this week. <clears throat> Paul sent this book as a letter to a church, and it was read in one sitting. We've been in it for over a year now, well over a year. And we've looked at some beautiful bark on some of the beautiful trees in this beautiful forest but we don't want to lose sight of the forest. And again, that's why we spent last week doing an overview of where we've been, Romans 1 through 8. What we're going to start today is the fourth point of our outline, which sounds crazy to say because we've been in blessings, the results of being right with God for so long. Um, point one was sin, the need for being right with God. Point two was justification by faith, the means for being right with God. Point three was, still feels funny to say that, Blessings, the results of being right with God. And this one is tough. Vindication. Point four is vindication. Sovereignty and who is right with God. Now, I changed that from our original outline. I had borrowed this outline from a Moody Bible commentary, and I didn't like what they had there. Um, I thought that they really missed the point of Romans 9 to 11. But point four is vindication. Sovereignty and who is right with God. Now that's, <laughs> that's a big statement. That's a big thought. And uh, we're going to spend the next 
few months talking about this point uh, between 9-1 and 11:36. <coughs> Excuse me, and if I cough a lot this morning, you'll have to overlook me. But just so you know, I, I, I want to give you a very brief outline of what Romans 9 through 11 will look like. And when I say brief, I mean brief. Okay? These three chapters will play out according to this flow of thought. Today, we'll see verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, and they will, along with the first half of verse 6, so we won't see that today, but 9-1 through 6a show us the problem presented in this passage, which is the Jewish people being estranged from God. Now, from the second half of verse 6 in chapter 9, all the way to the end of chapter 11, we'll see the solution to that problem. So problem, first six verses, solution, the rest of the chapters. There you go. There's your outline. You're welcome for all of that diligent work I just did to present this to you in that beautiful outline. Now that second chunk that has to do with the solution can get pretty bumpy. In it, we're going to ask, is God to blame for the Jews being estranged from Him? Spoiler alert, He's not. The second question that we're going to ask is, is Israel to blame? Hint again, yes. Okay, you're welcome again. We've just condensed all that. And after we establish these things, we'll see how God responds to all of this and how God has been responding to all of this. Now that fly-by outline is not going to be a bunch of help today, but keep it stored away. So we present a problem in the first six verses, then we see the solution in the rest of the chapters, and in the solution part we're going to ask, is God to blame? Is Israel to blame? What's God doing? Okay, tuck that away. That's going to serve you well over the next few months, and we'll go back over it again and again. So, in the meantime, before we look ahead, we've got to look back. And I'm not going to have you stand for the reading of the Word yet. It's going to be later in the message because we're not getting to our passage until quite a bit later into the message. So don't be surprised 20 minutes from now when I say, now stand for the reading of the Word. Okay? So I know that's a little bit out of... You know, just if we, if we can fit that in our box, we're going to be okay. But let me pray before I get into this passage. God... You are God in heaven, and here am I on earth. So I will let my words be few. And God, if I am one who has foolishly exalted himself, help me now to put my hand over my mouth. You are God. I am not. You are God. We are not. God, I pray that you would give us a God-sized vision of who you are and what you have done in history and what you will do in the future regarding the Jewish people and regarding redemptive history. Holy Spirit, please help us. Give us understanding. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, <coughs> we've seen a quick preview now we've got to go into a pretty in-depth review. He's like, well, we did a 1 through 8 review last week. Well, we're going to do another 1 through 8 review, but we're looking through different lenses this time. What I want to do 
before we jump in here is I want to go back through where we've been in Romans 1 through 8, and it actually won't take very long because it's not all of the stuff. It's really just kind of 1 through 4. And I want us to see what Paul has said in the passages leading up to Romans 9 about the Jewish people. And he has said some stuff, um, very significant stuff. And the passage 9 to 11 is jam-packed with a lot of implications for the gospel in general, but for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel specifically. In order to understand what's going on a little bit more fully, we have to go back and see where Paul has already been in this letter, specifically in his references to the Jewish people. Way, way, way back, and this was in the introductory message to Romans when we started the, this uh, book, we said that this letter was being written to the church in Rome, which would have been made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now by this time in history, the Roman emperor had told all the Jews to leave Rome. Get out of the city, you bunch of Jews. We don't want you here anymore. So they just scattered everywhere. Well, over time they had started to kind of come back in because Rome was the center of the world. And they had lives there and they had stuff there. So they started coming back in. Well, by the time they're coming back in, Christianity had come into Rome. And so what you've got is this group of believing Christians and you've got Jewish people who are being assimilated into that body. Some of them think they're believers, but they're not. Some of them are Jews, but they believe in Christ and they become part of the congregation. So you've got this melting pot and you've got new Christians who are practicing a religion that's never been heard of before in the world based on a man who came down and was God in the flesh and died on a cross, was buried, rose again, and then ascended into heaven. Okay, works for you, right? So you've got those new Christians. You've got Jews who are coming in saying, Oh no, we've got this all figured out. See, we've been doing this for years. We've been doing this for thousands of years. Let us tell you how it should be done. And then you've got Jewish Christians who are truly born again who are coming and going, Man, what is my role here? Do I still go to the temple? Do I still go to the tabernacle? What about the Sabbath? Should I circumcise my kids? And so there's a lot of confusion going on here. There's a lot of, ooh, what ifs, and, and how about this, and I've got this, where's Paul when you need him? So Paul sends a letter. And he's trying to help these three groups assimilate, and there's problems. Sure there's problems. This church would have been made up of Jews and Gentiles, and there was bound to be some confusion as to what of the Jewish religion was necessary to fully understand Christianity. And we see all through the book of Acts and in so many of Paul's letters that one of the biggest problems in the early church, especially as it spread over the known world, was what was known as Judaizers. People who would come in behind the gospel being proclaimed as being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then these Judaizers would come in behind that into these young congregations and they would start saying, yeah, but you still have to be circumcised. Or yeah, you still got to keep the Sabbath. Or yeah, you've got to be Jewish. You've got to keep our regulations. You've got to keep our customs. Because this is really about our God. Paul battled this mindset. And at one point, and I want to read you this passage, if you've got a Bible, turn to Galatians 2. Paul battled this mindset over and over and over again. And at one point, it says he even confronted Cephas, which is Peter, the Apostle Peter. And this was such a serious thing 
Let, let me just read the passage. I'm going to read Galatians 2, 11 through 21. And I'm still not going to have you stand for the reading of the Word. We'll get to that later. <clears throat> this is Paul. But when Cephas came to Antioch, again, Cephas is Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I'm starting in verse 11. We're going to read through 21. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, Peter was, which was unthinkable for a Jew. But when they came, the people from Jerusalem, James and his folk, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now let me stop there a second. Paul is Jewish. Jewish rabbi. Okay? He persecuted Christianity. He is full-blooded Jew. He said, if anybody has a reason to boast in their Jewishness, it's me. So we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For, though the, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Mm. Now listen, that's, that's really dense, and we're not going to unpack it this morning. But what I want you to see as we go through Romans chapters 9 through 11, I want you to see, keep this conflict in mind because this is exactly what they're going through in the church in Rome. And I wanted you to see what was going on in this time, the tensions and the problems caused by confusion in what role the historic Jewish faith played in the, played in the spread and growth of the gospel. And this was an ongoing and ongrowing problem. So when we arrive here in Romans 9, it's no wonder there's a kerfuffle, which I, it was just fun to write that down and say it, by the way. Let me, let me say it again in context, okay? Are you ready? It's easy to find it on the page too, because you're like, oh, kerfuffle. You don't see that anywhere else. <laughs> so when we arrive here in Romans 9, it's no wonder there's a kerfuffle surrounding the Jews and their place in redemptive history. And that's really what Romans 9 through 11 is all about. How God has dealt with the Jews in the past, how He deals with them regarding the gospel, and how He will deal with them in the future. So like I said at first, let's look and see what Paul has already said in Romans regarding the Jews and their place in God's plan. We see them mentioned very early on, Romans 1.16. You can look up here. You don't have to flip through your Bibles if you don't want to. <coughs> but you're welcome to if you want to. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So from the outset, how are Jews saved? The gospel. Period. 
No ifs, ands, or buts. And that's important. It's very important if we're to move forward in our understanding of both the Jewish people and God's plan. How are Jews saved? The gospel. Now, go to Romans 2, 9-11. Paul says this, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Here we see that when the judgment comes upon humanity, God will judge both Jew and Gentile the same for evil deeds, and He will give glory and honor and peace for those who do good, both Jew and Gentile. And verse 11 says, For God shows no partiality. Okay, good, we might say. But let me ask you a question. Is it really that simple? And the answer is yes and no. Things get a little bit more heated later in Romans 2 when Paul starts saying some pretty direct things about the Jews and how they've handled themselves, especially when it comes to being the ones who have God's law given to them. We're going to look at Romans 2, 17 through 24. Now hold on to your hats. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, and this hurts, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. <laughs> That's a low blow, Paul. That last statement is really harsh feeling. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, Jewish people who have the law, who are supposed to teach other people the law. He's saying since the Jews have the law of God, they should be shining moral examples to the rest of the world, but they aren't keeping the law and they're expecting non-Jews to keep it and are looking down their religious noses at the Gentiles for not having or keeping the law. Which is exactly what Paul was confronting Peter about back in Galatians. Remember Paul said to Peter there, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's the exact same thing he's saying here in Romans 2. And the result, Paul says to the Jews, is that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Yowza. Now again, that seems like a pretty harsh accusation against the Jews in general. So what if you're a Jewish believer or non-believer and you're sitting in church and this letter's being read and you're like, mm, this Paul guy. What's your opinion of him at this point? Probably not very favorable. Next place we want to look at is a pretty big statement, Romans 2, 28 and 29. Now this is... <laughs> Any Jewish people in here this morning? You're probably wrong. Romans 2, 28 and 29. 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now let me ask you a question. Any Jews here this morning? By the grace of God, I am a Jew. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Ooh. Now that's big. That's seismic in its implications in what we're going to talk about here. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now it's a huge, huge, huge to grasp that as we move forward. What does it mean to be a Jew? Is it by natural birth? Is it being circumcised? Not according to this passage. According to this passage, it's a matter of being born again and having our hearts circumcised by God Himself by the power of the Spirit. Now again, imagine being an ethnic Jew, one who was born into what is considered the family of God's people. And imagine how offensive what Paul is saying to this point must feel. Like your whole heritage was being tossed out on its ear. You who had heard all of your life that you were God's chosen people because of your lineage are not really God's people because of your birth. Now what? Surely by this point, if you're a Jew and you're reading this letter, you are sure that this Paul guy, Jew he may be, doesn't care much of the Jewish people. And then comes chapter 3. Paul starts chapter 3 by getting a start on what would seem like a list of sort. What sort? Romans 3, 1 and 2. Paul knows what's going on and he can feel the tension. He can hear the questions coming. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Answer? (laughs) Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now say what? Now it looks like Paul's defending the Jews saying they have advantages. What advantage has the Jew or what value circumcision? Answer? Much in every way. And then it says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then, well, that's the end of the list here, actually. I think personally that Paul picks this list up later in Romans 9, and we'll deal with that when we get there. But now look at Romans 3, 9, and we're almost done with the review part, okay? Romans 3, 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. What? What advantages? Much in every way. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And I'm telling you, if I'm hearing this letter and I'm a Jewish person, I'm going, I I hate this guy, I I like this guy, I don't know, who is this guy? What is he trying to say? So back to that truth, that statement. Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God, but here they're still no better off because they too are under sin. And then Paul takes all of chapter 4 to give the example of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, as the picture of being justified by faith and not works. In the middle of the chapter, it says in verses 16 and 17 of Romans 4, "...that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
So that brings us back to faith and not lineage for salvation. So being a Jew physically does not mean that you are Abraham's children. Do you understand that? Is that clear? Because it's irreplaceable if we're going to move forward in Romans 9-11 to to understand that. There is a physical Jew who is born ethnically in the Jewish ethnicity. I don't know if race is the right word. Being a man-made construct. But having Jewish roots, Jewish DNA, I guess. Being descended from physical Abraham. That makes you an ethnic Jew, but it does not make you a true Jew. You're going, I don't know about this. we got months to work it out, so stay with me. <clears throat> so, as we're moving into Romans 9, if you are a Jewish Christian listening to this letter, how do you feel about Paul now? He's basically said there's one advantage to being a Jew, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. But other than that, he hasn't been very complimentary to your heritage. If you're a Jew exploring the possibility of becoming a Christian, you're probably thinking Paul doesn't think much of your heritage. If you're a Jew looking from the outside, you probably just think that Paul is mean and that he's embarrassed of his Jewish roots. He's talked about all this hope that Christians have, how there's no condemnation for them, how they can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And now you have to wonder, that's great for this newfound religion, but what about us Jews? And so we come to Romans 9. Today we'll look at Romans 9 verses 1 through 5 to set the stage for where Paul stands with his Jewish roots, his heritage as a Jew, and his views of the Jews as a biological race. Now if you would stand for the reading of the Scripture, <coughs> we're going to read Romans 9, 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You can be seated. So now, <laughs> now you're a Jewish listener to this, and you're like, okay, now wait a second. There's some hope for this Paul guy. <coughs> Let's start in verse 1. And we'll, we won't take a long time in this passage this morning. We're almost, we're almost done, truthfully. We have to set that context, though. So verse 1, <clears throat> I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So we spent a lot of time between chapters 7 and 8 talking about the unfortunate chapter division that segregates the thoughts to the point of not making them work together. There it was, in my flesh I serve the law of sin at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that was at the end of 7, beginning of 8. Let me read it again in context without the chapter division. <coughs> Excuse me. In my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was 7 to 8. 
But the same is true here between chapter 8 and chapter 9. There are many people who say, biblical scholars, air quotes, who say that chapters 9, 10, 11 shouldn't be in the Bible. That it was a later edition. And that it has nothing to do with chapters 1 through 8 or 12 through 16. Some people try to explain it away as a parenthesis, like Paul's just kind of stepping over here and saying, oh, by the way, you Jewish folks, we'll take care of you too. But the connection between chapter 8 and chapter 9 are concrete. There really shouldn't be any chapter division there because it is the same flow of thought. It is the same thing going on between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Let me explain that. Let me read the end of chapter 8 and read directly into chapter 9. Romans 8, 37 through 9, 1. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now what's the connection there? What's going on here? At first we would say, oh, okay, good. I like this truth you're speaking. I'm glad that the truth is that we're in Christ and that you're not lying because we could draw that conclusion from the end of 8 and the beginning of 9 if we go back up to 1 because 1 is just saying we could be coming out of nothing to be able to separate us from the love of, Christ Jesus, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And we're like, yes! Amen! We like to celebrate on top of Everest, right? When everything feels good and it's exciting and there's no separation, no condemnation. Yes, Paul, you're not telling lies and I'm glad. I like this truth you're speaking, Paul. Give me another one. I'm glad your conscience bears you witness in the Holy Spirit that I can't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. After being told that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, it's reassuring to know that Paul is not lying, right? <laughs> but that's not what he's being so passionately truthful about. He had already established that back in chapter 8. No, his surety and his conviction in verse 1 of chapter 9 is referring to verse 2, which is that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Oh, wait, wait a minute. We are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And you are surely not lying in saying that you have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart. Well, that's weird. And then verse 3 tells us the source of his sorrow and anguish. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Oh, now I get it, I think. Maybe. Maybe not. Now, what's going on here? Paul has just spent chapter 8 extolling the wonders of being in Christ and not being able to be separated from Christ. But now he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish because, and I quote, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ 
for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So he just ended chapter 8 talking about not being able to be separated from the love of God because we're in Christ. And he starts chapter 9 by saying he's sad and in anguish because he wishes he could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brother, his kinsman, according to the flesh, which is those of the Jewish race who don't believe in in Jesus but are trusting in their heritage or their biology for their salvation. We can't be separated... I'm in anguish because I wish I could be separated. Now frame this up right. Get it straight in your heart and your mind before we proceed into this chapter and in this section over the next few months. Paul loves the biological Jewish people. Historical, biological, geographic, political Israel is precious to Paul to the point that he wishes he could be separated from Christ himself and be accursed himself if that was possible and could bring salvation to the Jewish people and nation. Anybody in here could say that about anybody in your life? That you wish you could die and go to hell so that somebody else could go to heaven? That is a deep, deep devotion and love. That is the deep, deep love that Paul feels for the biological, ethnic Israel. So first and foremost, let's do away with any notion or thought that Paul is against or opposed to the Jewish race in any way, shape, or form. This man loves his brethren according to the flesh. He loves them deeply and he loves them powerfully to the point that he wishes he could be separated from Christ if it would save them. He wishes he could go to hell so that they could go to heaven. That's verses 1 through 3. And our passage today ends in verses 4 and 5 by listing the benefits, the beauty of being Jewish, having Jewish ancestry. And I think this is the rest of the list that I mentioned earlier that Paul started back in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that again for you. (coughs) Excuse me again. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision back in chapter 3? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And if you read the rest of chapter 3, he never mentions this list again. He went off in a different direction after listing the oracles of God. Well, back here in 9, 4, and 5, we get the rest. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, biologically, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here. We'll brush over these benefits or advantages that they have pretty quickly so that you can get a bigger picture of it. The bigger picture of the beauty and how wonderful it was to be born Jewish. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. This is referring to God originally calling Abraham, or Abram at the time, and saying that He would make 
him, this individual, into a great nation. So God adopted Abraham and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And then we see that lived out more fully, Exodus 4, when God's getting ready to deliver this nation out of Egypt. He says, Thus, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So theirs is the adoption. Adoption of sons. That's a pretty big deal. That's ethnic Israel. Okay? We saw in Romans 8 that we were given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And that's wonderful. And Israel knew it before the rest of the world. The glory, which is in 9.4, the next blessing, the next advantage. The glory can mean a couple different things, but it at least refers to the nation of Israel seeing God's glory when they were given the law when the mountain burned with fire. And when the presence of God filled the tabernacle in Moses' day and the temple in Solomon's day, they saw the glory of God. And it can also refer to the glory promised to the nation of Israel by God Himself in His coming kingdom. Makes me think of Daniel 7, Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days. And it says in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, think about the glory. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now you want to talk about glory? How about dominion, glory, and a kingdom that is everlasting and shall not pass away? That's glory. And it was promised to Israel. The covenants was the next on the list. It could mean a lot of things. It refers at least to the covenant made with Abram that we talked about. And Romans 4 really expands on that. When God chose Abram and said He would make a great nation out of him. And then there's the covenant of the law made with Moses and the slaves coming out of Egypt. And then the covenant made with David that said a member of his bloodline would perpetually sit on the throne of Israel. And there are more, but those are the three big ones. God made covenants with Abraham, with Moses and the nation of Israel, and with David. And the Jews would look back at those covenants and say, Look at us. We've got some really good things going on here. And Paul's saying, you're right. You surely do. <clears throat> to them belong the giving of the law. We already mentioned this in the covenants. But God Himself, listen, as we go to elect leaders Tuesday, God Himself set forth the moral, social, religious, and ceremonial laws that the nation of Israel was to keep. Now, we can't fathom that. God gave them their national law. You want to talk about huge? That's huge. To them belong the worship, or some versions say the temple service. God prescribed how the nation of Israel was to worship. Now that's a worship leader, by the way. God told them how to properly worship Him as a people, down to how to kill a bird. I mean, down to minute details. So the worship is theirs. And the promises. Now which promises is he referring to? Not sure. There's a bunch of them. Actually, you could say that the whole New Testament is the promises of God to the Jewish people, to the Jewish nation. And then starting in verse 5, 
To them belong the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jews. And God's promises were made to them. And that's big. Listen, when God made the promises to Abraham, Abram at the time, I'm going to give you this land. Everywhere the sole of your foot treads will be yours. From here to here, here to here. This land will be yours perpetually. Who did He make that promise to? Abraham. Did Abraham deserve it? He was a moon worshiper. (laughs) Did Jacob deserve it? Lord, heavens no. Jacob's too much like me to deserve anything. Schemer, planner. To them belong the patriarchs. All those guys were Jews. That's big. All the blessings of the nation of Israel were made as promises to Abraham, the man, the patriarch of the Jewish nation. Father Abraham had many sons. And then he ends with this. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Oh yeah, this. Listen, people. Listen to what I'm about to say. God became a person. A male person. And He was born to a young Jewish virgin girl. And as a human being, Jesus Christ was a Jew. Do you think that's a pretty important fact? Do you think maybe God is making any kind of statement by showing up in the human race as a Jew? You bet He is. And just a quick note here from this verse. We're not going to hit it this morning. I just want to show it. Is the Christ who is God over all? Yes, the Christ is God. Yes, Jesus Christ is God. That's pretty important too, but that's not where we're at this morning. And He became a man, a Jewish man. Very God of very God, very man of very man, very Jew of very Jew. Now... What advantage has the Jew? (laughs) Sounds like they got some good stuff going on here. Sounds like God is on their side. Sounds like God showed up in their race. Hey y'all, God, Jew. (laughs) So now what? What is all this background and information about Jews and anguish and sorrow and covenants and Christ and blessings and everything we've talked about have to do with us? I'm going to point out three things because that's what preachers do. They point out three things out of a big passage. First, this passage sets the stage for all of 9, 10, and 11. There are hard, glorious, beautiful unimaginable truths that are about to be put forth about God, who He is, how He works, and more than we can take in in 9, 10, and 11. But it is rooted deeply and firmly in the beautiful, powerful love that Paul is expressing here for his lost, unbelieving kinsmen. Everything that follows in this passage, 9, 10, and 11, is dependent upon knowing the truth of that love. 
Paul is not speaking high, haughty, heady doctrinal truths that don't matter. He's speaking loving, beautiful, sacrificial, worshipful thoughts and truths that are the foundation of knowing and receiving God's love for us. Second, what is that love, that deep, send me to hell if it would help kind of love? What does that love lead Paul to do? It leads him to preach the gospel. Remember last week we said that the whole purpose of this letter is to share the gospel with the Roman church to help raise funds for a missionary trip to Spain. And if you look later in Romans, Paul says, See, I need to go to Spain because I've run out of room to work here. And here was from Jerusalem up to Illyricum. The Middle East up into Western Asia and Eastern Europe. Paul says, My goal is to preach the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet and i got no more room from here to here. So i got to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet. (laughs) I'm going to write you a letter and I'm going to share the gospel with you so that I can go to Spain and share the gospel. This deep, powerful, affectionate love that is deep-rooted in Paul's heart, not just for the Jewish people, but also for the entire human race, especially those who have never heard the gospel, that deep love moves him to share the gospel. From Jerusalem up to Illyricum is a lot of work. It's a lot of miles, a lot of sharing the gospel. And the truths that follow in Romans 9 to 11 are obviously rooted in Paul's theology and that theology leads him to preach the gospel. Whatever follows in 9, 10, and 11, is to be used as an impetus to preach Christ to the ends of the earth until the end of time. What is presented in 9, 10, and 11 is not an excuse. Well, we don't have to share the gospel because God's going to do all the work anyway. Whoever says that, whoever thinks that, whoever feels that, that's not what the Scripture is communicating. The deep truths, the deep doctrine that we're about to dive into has to lead us to preach the gospel. If it doesn't, we have missed it. If it doesn't, we are wrong. If it doesn't flow out of love like it did with Paul, if it doesn't lead us to share the gospel, we haven't heard a word that Paul says, that the Holy Spirit says in Romans 9, 10, and 11. If you get on the other side and have some sort of big head about, look what God did for me, you've missed it. And you're wrong. Whatever follows is to be used as an impetus to preach Christ to the ends of the earth until the end of time. Or we're wrong. So the deep love seen in Paul's desire to be cut off for his kinsmen. The love that leads Paul to share the gospel and should lead us to share the gospel. First, we should feel that same love for lost people. Second, we should share the gospel with everybody. And third, God 
God is operating on a very specific, purposeful timeline and plan. From before the foundation of the earth, God's plan has been, is, and will be working out according to God's purposes. But Donald Trump, but Hillary Clinton, but Hitler, but Nero, but my next door neighbor. Everything we've talked about today is according to the foreordained working and networking of God Himself. We talked about God and His plan in Romans 1 through 8, and you know what we're going to talk about in Romans 9 through 11? We're going to talk about God and His plan. Period. And listen to me. That's all that matters. All that matters is God and His plan. This section of chapters 9 through 11 in Romans ends with a higher song of praise than even the one that concluded 5 through 8. And the one that concluded 5 through 8 was pretty good. We rejoiced at the end of chapter 8 and said we were more than conquerors and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. At the end of chapter 11, we'll hear Paul say this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. We've heard that somewhere before, haven't we? To Him be glory forever. Amen. You know what? Man, we love the end of chapter 8 because it's a whole lot about us, isn't it? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors. Yes, God, amen. But what happens when you get to the end of chapter 11? You say, I don't have a clue how you're working, God. I don't understand a thing. You're bigger than me. You're stronger than me. You're smarter than me. And everything is working together. All things are from you, through you, and to you. And yes, you're causing them to work together for my good, and I'm glad for that. But even greater than that is that to you be all the glory forever. Oh, we're excited when it's about us. And we should be. It's good. It's great. It's wonderful to stand on top of Everest and say, We did it. God did it. God got us here. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But on the back side of the mountain, guys, when the storm comes, but God, did you bring me all the way to the top of this mountain to let me die? What if He did? He's going to get the glory for it. Do you want to sing that song? Because you should. My question to you and to me is this. Will I, will you, will we rejoice in God, rejoice in His plan, rejoice in His glory, especially when we finally understand that we don't have a clue how big He is. When we finally understand how perfect His plans are and how magnificent His glory is.
even when it blows our little theological boxes into splinters. This God you think you know? The Apostle Paul, writing Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. That means we can't figure Him out. We don't know why He does things the way that He does them. We don't know how He does things. We can't figure Him out. Are you willing to glorify Him when you can't figure Him out? When it looks like it doesn't make sense anymore. But God, let me tell you what, Romans 9, 10, and 11 have me saying every day, but God, do you mean that? And He says, yes. And I say, I don't understand that. And He says, yes. And I say to Him, be glory forever. Especially when I don't understand it. He's bigger than us, guys. He's not like us. And He ain't scared. His plan, His way is perfect. We sang it this morning. You are perfect in all of your ways. His glory is beyond anything we can begin to fathom. Our place in this plan is to do what? Sometimes it's to stand on top of the mountain and rejoice in the victory. Praise God. This is awesome. This is great. This feels really good. Sometimes that's our part in the plan. Sometimes it's to tell other people about Him. And sometimes, well, sometimes our part in the plan is to put our hands over our mouths and be quiet. Wisdom comes when we know when which is right. He is God. We are not. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Our part is to say, Amen. We would do well to remember that today and as we proceed through Romans chapters 9 through 11 and every day. Amen. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would birth in us a deep affection, not just for Jewish people, but for those who have not trusted Christ for their salvation. God, may we weep over the lost condition of this world. We're so prone to accuse and tell them they're wrong and how bad they are. And we're right. But God, may it move us to pray May it move us to preach the gospel. Not to accuse them. Join the work of the enemy. God, I pray that you would stir a deep affection in our hearts for people. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
God, would you birth in us love? And would you help us by the power of your Spirit to preach the gospel? And God, when we come up against situations that we don't understand, that we can't comprehend, help us to shut up and trust who you are. May we never accuse you of injustice, God. May we never accuse you of not running things right. May we never look at your plan and say, that's not fair. Help us to love deeply, preach passionately, and shut up when we need to, God, so that you get glory in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction as we conclude? (coughs) Excuse me. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks, guys.